0: Be in Galatians. So I just want to start us off with the intro, the first 10 verses of the book of Galatians as we get into this idea of faith, not works, in regards to our salvation. Starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. As we dive into the book of Galatians. We need your spirit to guide us. Recognizing that these are your words. Through the Apostle Paul, for the Galatians, but also for us. So help us, God. Embed these truths deeply within us, that we could follow after you, understand who Jesus is and what He has called us to, and that we might remain in it. And we pray it in Christ's name, Amen. Now, before we get into all of Galatians, and we'll do some of just what Galatians about in the intro sermon, but I think it's true that everyone, in some way, is looking for freedom. Kind of an ongoing journey of different types of freedom. What I mean by that is that you might be uh, like the story of many nations. Freedom from oppression. We need to get rid of the nation that is oppressing us or the people who are oppressing us. We need to get out from under that. We need to find freedom because this is not free. But anybody who has also listened to the Dave Ramsey uh, talk show, a radio show, knows that yelling out your we're free from debt is also kind of a thing. Freedom from debt. Right? The borrower is slave to the lender and so we go we want to be free. We want to be out of debt as much as we can. right? In the Ramsey rules like no debt other than a 15 year mortgage. Like That's all you should have and everything else needs to be picked out. Like, we get the idea. When we have to make payments to things we get the idea of uh, being in a sense in subjection to that. Like Try not paying and see what happens. And so we want to free ourselves even from indebtedness. We know what that is like. We might pursue freedom from guilt. We feel bad about something that we have done. Or things that we have done or ways that we have acted. And so we will do certain things or live in certain ways to try and feel free from whatever has plagued us. And we try all kinds of different things, right? We'll try... Uh, medication, we'll try counseling, we'll try alcohol, we'll try friendships, we'll try forgetting, like whatever we can do to feel better about ourselves, but I really do think that every single person in this room, especially as you get older, you start to realize that you're trying to feel free in certain areas. And what often moves you, motivates you to live differently is this uncomfortable feeling of slavery or bondage or this relationship of servitude between you and something or someone that you don't want. And so you're trying to break free of that. And it's interesting because when you gain it, you work just as hard, or if not harder, to keep it. Then you spend a lot of your energies trying to keep that freedom. Uh, for example, and this is, you might think this is a political statement, but it's not, a large amount of our country's budget... Is defense, right? Defense. Why? Because there's that idea embedded within us. We must protect our freedom, and even just the concept of freedom. And so, when you achieve it, you work really hard in whatever sphere of life to keep it, right? I mean, if you have, if you've achieved being debt free, even the house is paid off. You owe no one anything. You think long and hard about what needs to get sold before you will enter back into a relationship of credit with someone else. You don't want to do it. And so we know we work really hard to keep it. But the question that comes uniquely in our relationship with Jesus, who has given us freedom, is what happens if we lose it? What happens if we lose it? Or what happens if we start thinking about something else or attaching ourselves to something else or other truths? Because we would say here at Genesis, right, we are, we would say a gospel-centered church. That's what we want to be always and in everything. And what that means is this, what we talk about, what we do, and even down to how we should treat one another should be defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. The work that He did in coming into this world, we just celebrated the Incarnation, the life that He lived, the death that He died for our sins, that He rose, that He ascended, that He is returning. Everything we talked about last year, what we should be doing, moment by moment, should be focused on the grace that we have in Jesus, the work that He has done. But it is true that that can feel lost or we get sidetracked or we get distracted. In the book of Galatians, named after the region to which it was written, is a book of confrontation. The book of confrontation with the idea of what happens when you start to go after something other than the freedom that you have in Jesus. Something other than the life that you have in Jesus. Something other than the freedom from sin and the freedom from law, which we'll get into. So it's a book written to people who have freedom in Christ, but other people... Call them Judaizers, from Galatians 2.14, other people have entered in. And they have started to say, well, I know you think you're free in Jesus, but you really need to obey the Mosaic law in order to really feel that freedom. So Jesus came, Jew, Gentile, everybody has the same freedom and the same access now. But others were coming in and going, if you really want to be saved, If you really want to experience freedom, then you have to, in a sense, go backwards. And that had started to happen, and Paul knew it. He knew it. So he wrote to them as he heard that they have started to believe a different gospel, even though, as he even says in these first ten verses, there is no other gospel. There's not one. Even if I start telling you something different, some other gospel, some other story, even if I start to say something other than what you have already received, we might as well go to hell. That's what we might as well happen. That's what he means by a curse. We should should be condemned forever because this is not, that would not be true or in keeping with what you've heard. So the Judaizers, as I will reference them kind of throughout, but it comes through making them like Jews, making them Jewish in their obedience to the law. They want you to think that your freedom was found by going back. You really want the freedom, you've got to go back. And Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. And next week and the week after, we'll kind of get into some of the chronology of Paul and how it fits together, specifically in regards to Galatians and how these pieces work. Um, because we'll see why this letter is dealing with what it is. Because a lot of these ideas of Jew and Gentile relationships, though they have been the same, They're still trying to figure out how it all works. The Jerusalem Council, in Acts chapter 15, kind of declares it so, which comes, I believe, after what we're reading in Galatians, kind of declares it to be, no, of course Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to obey the law. That's That's not what freedom is. But you have to realize that these ideas, these new ideas, are really hard to become normative for a church especially, think about it, if you have a Jewish background, well, then you feel like everything's being turned upside down. Everything. You don't have, like, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I mean, they got to do something, right? They have to do something other than have faith in Jesus. We got to make them do something. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. So that's where uh, we will be as we get into it. And so we'll even hear some from the introduction this morning, but we'll go from the introduction, his comments in verses 1-5 uh, through five about being no other Savior, and then the statement that there is no other gospel, and then what do we do about it. So start with just the purpose of the letter is to show that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is it. If you believe anything else, then it's not going to really work. So this letter is often regarded as Paul's first epistle. Verse 1 he wrote, We're looking at Maybe right before fifty A.D., uh, right, right around there. So, so right before maybe forty-eight or forty-nine. Some people date it differently, and it's always hard to necessarily kind of nail the precise date because unlike emails that have a timestamp and go, well, you said this at you know eleven twenty-three and forty-five seconds on this date. Like, we don't have the timestamp, so we read the letter, we look at the language, we look at the other things that have gone on. We go, it doesn't really seem like Paul has addressed the Acts chapter fifteen. Uh, Jerusalem Council Declaration, be weird that he wouldn't address that in a letter to the Galatians, right? Uh, So why wouldn't he talk about something that was so clearly spoken? So we probably would put put the letter before that, Uh, but we also need to kind of line up when he came to faith and what happened, and he has these statements about 3 years and 14 years, and so as people kind of do the work, there's kind of a range, but 48, 49 is a pretty safe bet for when this letter came about. And who are the Galatians? Well, it's kind of two theories. There's a, a Galatian region, which is kind of northern, uh, northern Mediterranean, kind of the north area, and there's a southern area. The northern area is what might what might have been called Galatia, but there's really no record of Paul being there, planting churches, doing work. Uh, then there's the area that's not called the the region of Galatia, but kind of the district that you know, the political district of Galatia. And Paul was there, his first missionary journey. And his first missionary journey, he's going to Derby and Lister, he's kind of marching around, he's planting churches, he goes back and he establishes elders. And So the general thought currently among scholarship is that this was written to the southern, it's called the southern Galatian theory, but the southern group of Galatians, kind of those churches that existed during Paul's first missionary journey. That, too, would make sense. It doesn't line all the dates up perfectly, squarely. I know we love everything to fit in its box. But that makes sense, because what would be going on, then, is these new churches are trying to figure out what in the world to do with what they have in Christ, and how do you operate. And so, where would the first targets for heresy or false teaching be but the first churches? And so, it does make sense that these first churches are now struggling with this idea of, How do we handle this freedom in Christ? So written a little before 50 AD, likely before the Jerusalem Council. And these people live in what would be the political district of Galatia. Part of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul went on three. right? The first one was kind of that northern Mediterranean area. Then he moves in the second one. He moves westward. uh, And and that's kind of where the second one happens. The third one, he spent a lot of time. Leave in Ephesus, so he spends years there, travels some more, comes back. So he spent a lot of time uh, in this first area, the northern Mediterranean region, and that. And he writes, his language is choppy, he gets to it quickly because he's so frustrated with these people who have already said, so long to Jesus. So long. And so he writes to explain both by just his forceful language, but also through his own story, which is going to come right after this. Let me explain to you why the gospel that I preached to you the first time is the true gospel. He's going to get into that. He's going to show up by the people he rebuked. When he rebuked Peter, a pillar of the church for not living in keeping with these truths. Then he goes to actually illustrating what Jesus has done And why we need to realize that we need to leave the law behind and pursue Jesus. That's what happens as he keeps going. And then, like many letters, there becomes what they call these ethical sections, where they start to talk to you about how you live. And these sections are always coming in Paul's letters. Now, James, after Easter, James is basically all ethical. It's all, this is how you live. But Paul generally is going to lay out why something is true and then talk to you about what you do because of it. So that's the purpose, that's the idea, that's where it's going. We'll refer back to this, but now that you've done all of last year, right? We're going, to start, we're going to start holding you accountable to the things you read. We're going to have to piece these pieces together so that they fit right in what we're doing. And so this is what Paul starts with in the first five verses. He even alludes to his point in the introduction that there is no other Savior. In the first five verses, he's going to lay that out right away. Now, Roman letters would have generally an introduction. This is who wrote it. Uh, We do that at the end, right? And in the sender line. Uh, But generally at the end of our letters, we say who it came from. Love, Hans, right? Or whatever whatever it might be. Well, they introduce themselves at the beginning to who they're going. Some type of, you know, uh, introduction, well wishes happens. Then there's usually a blessing section, which is totally non-existent in the book of Galatians. Like, Paul gets right down to business after he goes, grace and peace to you now. I'm mad at you. So he says, no other Savior. These first five verses. Paul, introducing himself, an apostle. An apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So you notice even in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about what you need to believe. He's not hiding that. So he identifies himself as an apostle, Apostle is somebody sent out with delegated authority, but we would believe, I would believe that an apostle is not, you can't just declare yourself one, right? You, you don't just go, oh, I'm an apostle, right? Like Hans, the apostle of Genesis. Like, that's not how it works. You can't call yourself an apostle because apostleship comes from the Lord. It comes from relationship with Jesus. And so there were a handful of apostles in the first century, a handful. They were the people who were walk, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, and were sent out by Jesus to continue to declare the message. There might be people who have giftedness that is apostolic, but they still wouldn't be called apostles. These were unique people who had a role in the establishment of the church. And Paul even says that. Man didn't make me an apostle. not an apostle from man. I'm not self-declared an apostle. I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. God gave me this title. Man didn't give me this title. And not, just in case you didn't know what I was talking about, God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Which we might define at different times, like we might add to how we would talk about the gospel. But essentially, Paul even right there in verse 1 is like, Jesus is raised from the dead. He is the one we're focused on right here. So he even tips his hand right there. (coughs) Paul, an apostle, and the brothers who are with me, usually others who are along for the ride. So the brothers who would make, because Paul never really rode solo unless he was in prison. He um, says, to the churches in Galatia. Letters were often circular, meaning they were to be distributed amongst the churches in the area. We got this thing from Paul. Let's read it. Right, let's see it. Hey, you, yeah, you get it. In Colossians, he's like, take my letter, share. You know, tr- switch letters with the letter I wrote to this other household. And so these ideas of to the churches in Galatia, so they get to hear Uh, what paul has said and he's trying to teach all of them and he does do his introduction grace to you and peace but it doesn't come from paul it comes from god our father and the lord jesus christ and he goes further to explain what jesus has done again refuting already the judaizers who have come in to the galatian church jesus christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, meaning that their law doesn't deliver you, Jesus delivers you. So he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So even in this, Paul is starting by saying, it is Jesus. God gave me my authority as an apostle, which is already being challenged by the churches in Galatia, like, we well, don't need to listen to Paul. Paul doesn't know anything. We really know what's going on. So in these first five verses, he's essentially laying out already what he believes. And he's already refuting what the Galatians have started to wander from. It is Jesus who died for your sins. It is Jesus who delivers you. The law doesn't deliver you. The law enslaves you. So even as he begins, he is starting to talk to Galatians, and he's starting to address what's going on with those who have accused him of wrongdoing and are teaching something that is contrary to the gospel. And we have to be careful here, and I've said this before, but some of you, some of us, will hold some kind of obscure view, like out here in left field. We go, yeah, well, you know, sometimes I wonder if. We'll have conversations like that, that don't necessarily mess with the content of the gospel. They go, hey, well, what's your view here? How do you view this? Or how do you handle this issue in ministry? And so we have decisions or conclusions to which we have come. Paul isn't addressing those. What's happening in the Galatian church is they have tinkered with the basics. They have started to adjust the core truths of the gospel that in so not believing them, you are no longer following Jesus. And the problem is, if you continue to cycle that through, then what happens is that the next generation doesn't even know the gospel. They have no idea what it is because now this idea that the Judaizers have embedded has become part of how we talk and part of how we think. So he already says in verses 1 through 5, there is no other Savior and there is no thanksgiving statement. You read the letter to the Ephesians and like the whole first part of the Ephesians is one long 200 and something letter or word sentence sentence. And he's just talking about how awesome they are and how much he loves them. In fact, I don't believe the letter to the Ephesians has any strong rebuke at all. Many of the epistles have rebukes. Ephesians doesn't. He's just like, you guys are great. You're the best, right? That's just how it feels. Everyone's wonderful and everyone's so happy. And he writes all this stuff about how much he loves them and what the Spirit has done for them. So you're expecting, right, as you're reading a Paul, Paul's epistle, let's just keep up. But then you move from that, amen, verse 6. And in this he's saying there's no other gospel. There's 6 through 9. I am astonished. And that doesn't mean he's shocked. It doesn't mean that he's surprised. Like, oh my gosh, what? Paul understands false teaching. He sees how it works. He sees how it affects. But he's just trying to go, it's shocking to me that you would already leave the gospel that you have heard. Listen how he talks about it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel and he clarifies not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ you hear what he's doing right there in verse 6 verse 7 I'm astonished that you left the gospel, for another one. And you might go, oh, okay, well there are different things that you could believe. That's what our culture says, right? Culture today says, well, you can kind of believe whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. I think, you know, you think that. I think this. You know, we'll figure it out in the end. Like, it'll all work itself out. But, but <clears throat> it's okay to hold multiple beliefs. We often hold conflicting beliefs in the same family and the same class in this building, right? And people go, oh, I believe this and I believe that. And we'll really figure it out later. So Paul's like, You've gone to another gospel. And then he goes, no, 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 hold on. Not that there is another one. There's not another one. There's one. But what you've done is people have come in to trouble you, bother you, concern you by distorting the true one. And so it's not as if it's like, well, you could believe this or you could believe this. Or you could believe this. Paul clearly lays out in verses 6 and 7. You can't just pick the one you want to believe. There's one. And the problem is people have come in. And they have started to distort that for you. They started to tinker with it. It changed it. So now what you believe is not the gospel at all. So I started to think about that. Because they were so quick to leave the true gospel for false gospels. In this instance, the false gospel of going back to law as the way to be saved. And so, I have a few for you about false gospels, because uh, if you want, like, content of the gospel, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then He talks about His appearing. Interesting that Paul uses. Christ appearing is a part of that gospel content in 1 Corinthians 15. But his appearance means lots of people saw him. People saw him. You could go talk to them if you wanted to talk to them. They have addresses. Go, Go to their house and go, did you see Jesus? And they'll say, yes, I saw Jesus. After he was crucified, after he was buried, he was roaming around talking to people. So the gospel, Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, that's always there that never changes. But culturally, it's always getting messed with. So false gospels. For example, one, <clears throat> a gospel of works or a gospel of law. That's what the Galatians are starting to resort to. And when I say that, it's not like you find the book called The Gospel of Works and read about it. What I mean by that is the gospel, the way that we try and find salvation versus the way we should. Right? The false gospel of works is saying that, oh, well, you need to work a certain way and believe in a certain way, and behave in a certain way. All those things kind of get tied together so that you can be saved. And if you read the Jerusalem Council decision where they're dealing with, how do we deal with Jew and Gentile in the same church? Peter's like, hey, let's be honest with ourselves. Peter was a good Jew. obey the law. Do what it says. But he says, guys, let's be honest. I can't even do this. We can't do this. If we, being good Jews, can't keep the law, how in the world do we think a Gentile who's never done this could keep the law? It's impossible. We know it's impossible. So everyone needs to come to God through faith in Jesus. The gospel of works keeps you from that. And you might have been in churches that function in that way. They say, well, you're not really in unless... You know, you you have to think like this. You have to parent like this. You have to spend your weekends like this. You have to worship like this. And if you don't do these things, you're kind of always going to be an outsider. And that feels really good. And I know you're going, no, 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 it doesn't feel good. It feels terrible. It feels good because you can control, right? You can control with law and you can control behavior. That's why parenting is so hard because you can control your kids with behavior, but you're not really sure if they've understood the heart. You go, don't do that because I said so. You go, well, okay, I guess. So you try to control your disciples by saying do and don't. Operate this way, don't operate that way. So the gospel of works is what they're falling into. Follow the law, Gentiles need to get circumcised, you need to go back into this kind of system and into this way of thinking because that's really where freedom's found. Paul, the whole letter, is going, nope, 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 nope. But there's others. I I would call it... um, the gospel of works and law misses grace, but there's also a gospel that misses sin. Kind of the gospel of inclusion, right? Everybody. God loves everybody. And, and he wouldn't want anybody to not be with him. Which is true. That is true. God loves everybody. Romans 5, eight. This is love. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So we know God wants us to know him because he sent Jesus into the world that we could understand what love really was. But then there's this passing on of that idea to anybody. They don't really need to believe it. They don't really it's we all everybody's okay. And Jesus showed us that. So this gospel of inclusion misses sin and the penalty of sin, the consequence of sin. Christ died for our sin, for our sins. For the fact that we are totally dead to rights when it comes to relationship with Him. So the Son of God dies for us. To remove our sin from the table and not have to contend with that and just kind of go, no, you're fine. Totally misses sin. That would be another thing where Paul would go, I'm astonished. Christ died for you. So in, while he's talking to Galatians, going Christ died for your freedom in Him, so you don't have to do that. The emphasis for a gospel of inclusion or everybody's okay might be this: might be Christ died, right? You talk about that He died for your sin. You have to deal with your sin. You have to think about what that is done and how you find forgiveness for your sin. We've heard this prosperity gospel which often thrives in poor countries and in poor parts of even our our country and poor parts of the world, where you go, oh, if you uh, give more and you pray hard and you are faithful in these things, then God will materially bless you. And if you don't receive that material blessing, then it's not because of God, it's because of something you did wrong. You didn't pray hard enough, you didn't give enough, you didn't live rightly enough so that the blessing of God might come to you. You're holding on to something got to figure out what that is because if you were really living like this then just the blessings would flow your way it would be nice if that were true that just by like if you pray with a certain intensity you look up and money's on the table that if you just if you just prayed hard enough for your injuries or for your illness it would disappear But what does the prosperity gospel miss? I mean, all of these miss the work of Jesus, but it's going to miss suffering. Have you ever contended with the fact that Jesus had to die for your sins? You have to to deal with that. And the fact that he's coming again? You know, we, we kind of like the first part of what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And then as you get to the second half of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, then there's always people like, well, some are sawing too, and some did this. And so the first part is like, victory, victory, victory. Then it's like, death, death, death. So you just kind of stopped reading, didn't you? What about suffering? What about pain? How does what we do give context that isn't just you're doing something wrong? I remember when I broke a foot. I rolled my, my foot playing racquetball like my first week of seminary, the first time. It hurt so badly. Now I'm in the ER, I'm getting waiting to get my x-rays and I got rolled in and um, I heard somebody talking about prayer and I remember, I just so, so distinctly remember this, this guy, this girl talking and the girl was like, did you pray? He goes, yeah, I prayed. And she said, well, you didn't pray hard enough. You didn't pray hard enough. That somehow a significant effort on your part beholdens God to then reply to you with some type of material or physical blessing. Just not True. Not true. And it thrives upon those who have little to nothing. There's one, there's a whole book about this, um, if you want to want to read it, but called this, uh, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Have you heard of that idea? Uh, this is a scary one because it kind of functions in all of our lives in some way or another. But I'm going to just kind of summarize what this idea is, because those are big words. It basically says this. God exists. That's good. It's good that God exists. I'm I'm for it so far. He created and ordered the world. Check. And he watches over human life on earth. I'm in. I want a God like that. He created it. He ordered it. He watches over it. That all makes sense. Number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. I mean, I think we do want to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That'd be good. I would like all of you to be nicer to each other. But it seems to be missing a significant motivation, doesn't it? Right? But you're saying, oh, well, well, God doesn't want you to do that. That's what we start to teach. God doesn't want you to do that. I remember one time I got this great advice and It was like, hey, you should tell them that God will get them for it. God will get you for it. And so I think I yelled it at them. It was like trick-or-treating or something. God will get you for it, because I just assumed that that's what you say. Third idea, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And it would be nice, again, right? All these things would be nice. It would be nice if you were happy. I want happier churches. We should be the happiest people in the world. We have Jesus. Happiness is all right. Number four, and then it gets even a little more screwbally. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. But isn't you know how we treat God? Help! Help, God! <laughs> I don't know what to do. And then we just kind of operate nicely in the meantime. Right? So just smile, be good, be glad you are where you are, and then when stuff gets tough, help! God fixes it, and you're like, all right, no, let's go back to the grocery store and you know, keep smiling. Fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. And so the thing that it starts to do, and this can run rampant in our circles, is like because we live in a Christianized culture, like we can go, well, you know, God wants you to be nice, God cares about you. Like it says true things, kind of backed up with a proof text. But it misses Jesus altogether. And so what it kind of is, is a way to get you to think good thoughts, to believe good things, to behave in good ways. And honestly, that's a lot of what we're going for in life. You know, I just don't want to be as angry. Road rage is no fun. So when somebody cuts me off, I want to smile at them instead of use an appendage and so you you live in this way and you go wouldn't this just be nice if and that's what that's going to teach us we teach behavior modification this is why and i, I really like some of this uh, these ideas personally but this is why if you follow some people who are like in their 30s or 40s and they talk about this idea of purity culture which was like hey you know like save yourself for marriage uh, and they would talk about these, and that's a good statement. But it would be kind of followed up with, and if you don't, your world's going to end. right? Like, and if you, it, it, but if you somehow mess this up, like, it's kind of game over. It was that idea. Like, so do good things because God wants you to live a certain way, believe and behave in a certain way. But if you miss and just use that as a way to control behavior, you go, this is nice to do, and it's polite, and it's kind, and it's caring, and it's loving, but if you miss Jesus behind it and the grace that exists within him for any failure and if you think that just goodness is what gets you to heaven then you've missed it. It doesn't get you to heaven because you're worse off than you think you are. You really are. All of us are worse off than we think we are. There's also the gospel of just self. This is also kind of rampant in our culture. The old heretical term would be Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It's just fun to name things after people. Calvinism, Pelagianism, whatever you want to call it. Just, you know, cool to have an ism. Guggerism. I don't know what it would be, but. It's this idea that you can save yourself. This is so American. This is so American. If you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you just work harder, you can do it. You can realize this, so you're kind of working with God in order to get to this new status, right? So if you just, I mean, you can do it. You can achieve whatever destiny you want to have. And again, sounds good culturally. Totally misses what Jesus has done. So when I say these core issues, when you start to, adjust sin, or adjust our view of self, or you start to adjust suffering, or you start to adjust morality in such a way that you try to get people to God, without actually having to go through God, being Jesus, to get there, you're sending people to hell. That's why Paul's so mad. That's why he's so mad. False Gospels neglect the full Gospel. And thus they empty the true gospel of its power. Not that it's not powerful, but these people are removing parts of it so that you can't actually experience the transformation that comes from the grace of Jesus. I am astonished. In verses 8 and 9, Paul then says, Listen, I believe this so much that I should be accursed if I preach something else. Even if we or an angel from heaven. It's interesting how even religions today claim some type of angelic encounter to get to the information that they have. So this alone says there should be no other messages. You can't say, oh, well, the Christians had it right, but it got messed up. Now we have it right. Because you have to neglect and reject what Paul says in verse 8. If you hear something else, if you hear something else, it isn't what you've already heard. We should be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is no other way. There is no other way. This is why world missions is so important. Global evangelism is so important. Going to the unreached is so important. Because there's not just some kind of escape clause where you go, well, I hope that if they live well enough, God kind of gets them in the back door. Because if so, you have to reject all the exclusive statements that the New Testament makes about Jesus and believing in Him and the missionary effort that Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus and all these people make for the cause of Christ amongst those who have never heard of him. If you hear something else, it's not the gospel. It must be heard, proclaimed, and believed to be saved. So I would say to you, and we'll use verse 10 to kind of capture this for us, but to live life captivated by God's gospel, verse 10. What he says. So Galatians, you heard from these Judaizers, and I'm just a man pleaser here. This is what I want to do. Well, from what I've said, am I trying to please man or God? Whose approval am I looking for in what I've told you so far? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's going to put his reputation on the line. He's going to put his gospel on the line, he's going to put his entire story on the line, which he'll get to next week. I was advancing in Judaism. I was excelling in every single way, but God found me. So if I were trying to live for your just pleasure, if I were trying to live to make you happy, I wouldn't be serving but Paul is captivated by the truth of the gospel. It was given to him by God. Man's gospel frustrates and confuses us, and it diminishes God's power. It controls behavior really well, but it diminishes and removes, empties the cross of its power. God's gospel puts the work of Jesus on display. And its exclusivity scares us off. Are you saying that I have to? Yeah. You have to believe in Christ. But here's the thing. Anybody can. Anybody can. It's for everyone. So trust Him. And what we see in verse 10 is this. You're going to lose. You will lose status in this world by being associated with Jesus. Paul is not a politician. He is not doing polling to see what his beliefs should be. What's popular right now? What can I hold on to? What's the platform, right? That's not what's going on here. Going, this is what Jesus has done. I'm not trying to poll the Judaizers to go to what I, I should believe. I'm not trying to figure it out that way. No, it's only through Jesus. So you lose earthly status, but you gain God. It's a pretty good trade. Yeah, sure. You're going to think I'm crazy. You're going to think that the things I believe and the things that I say make no sense. But I have the Lord. I have the creator of the universe. I'll take that trade. So next week, when he lays out some of his testimony, he goes, I'm not just getting getting something that's cooked up by man. This came from God. He'll get into the coming weeks why he can stand on it so firmly. And it's because it wasn't just some idea that was kind of baked up in a boardroom about what would be cool. It's what God has done. Be captivated by what God has done. Marvel at what God has done. Never tire of what God has done because when you tire of it, you start to look for false gospels. What else might satisfy? I remember John Hanna in seminary, he's a historical theology guy, but he was just awesome. When you were in his classes, you were like, you were getting a pastor just teaching you stuff. And it was like, there was even this Twitter account one time that's just like Hanna isms because he just had these statements built over decades and decades of teaching. And he talked about things more beautiful than Jesus. And really, there's nothing more beautiful than Jesus. But he was talking about his gratitude that in his flesh, the Lord has not, the Lord has essentially prevented him from seeing something as more beautiful than Jesus. You see the difference? There's nothing more beautiful, but at times you might convince yourself there is. And he said, I'm just grateful to God that I haven't found anything more beautiful. They haven't gone after something more beautiful than Jesus. Be captivated by what God has done. I look forward to the journey through Galatians together as we work through time and time again what has God done for us and how does it change us. There are always moral imperatives from the gospel. Always. It's not just like, God saves you, good luck. Not that. But Let's stay rooted in what's true so that when we live and the fruit is born, it's born of something that is true and not of something that will